We're going to be treading water in the deep end of the Trinity this morning, and I've been treading water for the last few days, and my feet still haven't touched the ground, and uh, haven't found any place to put my foot, so uh, you're going to start treading with me this morning as we consider this mysterious concept, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8, and as we continue our study, we're just going to pick up where we left off last Sunday, and we're just going to look at the next two verses, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul writes, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness... For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Father, we just want to acknowledge up front that this passage is beyond our understanding. There's no way I could fully explain it. There's no way we could fully understand it. But we're thankful that the Holy Spirit who is talked about in this text is the one who inspired this text and is the one who dwells within us and has the power and the ability to illuminate our minds and give us understanding, at least as much as we can understand as a human as much as is humanly possible. And so we appeal to your spirit now to help us as we dive into the deep end here of your word and um, that you would help us to make it back to the surface here in a few minutes with some practical help and hope, some comfort, some reassurance that can help us in our daily walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know of anything in the Christian faith that is more complex or more mysterious than the Trinity. The word Trinity, which simply means three in one, is not found anywhere in the Bible. Another word, another way to say Trinity is triunity, and it's a word that theologians came up with. They coined, if you will, with an effort uh, or in an effort. Uh, to accurately and faithfully describe how God revealed himself in Scripture as the one and only true God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And uh, really, the doctrine of the Trinity is just an attempt to be faithful to all of Scripture, to the whole counsel of God. And there are verses in the Bible that emphasize both the singularity of God but at the same time, the plurality of God. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is what? One. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is but one God. But then it also says things like this in Genesis 1, 26, Let us make man in our image. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The verse that Dennis was quoting earlier, baptizing them in the name of the, what? The Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then we won't take the time to turn there, but we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 a couple of weeks ago, where Paul highlighted the specific role that each member of the Godhead plays in salvation. And we learned how the Father elects us, the Son redeems us, and the Spirit seals us. And so it's from verses like these that we get the doctrine of the Trinity, which could be basically defined as follows. There is one indivisible God who exists in three different persons, equal in essence, but distinct in their roles and functions. Let me say that again. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one indivisible God who exists in three different persons, equal in essence, but distinct in their roles and functions. Now, obviously, there's a lot of mystery in that definition. And whenever the doctrine of the Trinity shows up in a passage, there is also mystery involved in interpreting and understanding that passage. And that is true of this puzzling passage that we have before us this morning, which is difficult, even impossible, to fully unpack and to fully understand. And so I'm just going to be up front with you that when this sermon is over, you will still have questions about this passage. Uh, in fact, you might have more questions about this passage because I know after studying this passage, I still have questions. In fact, I have more questions. And yet this is the price we pay for having a God who is worthy to be worshiped. Amen? Here in verses 26 and 27, we are given one of the most intimate glances into the inner works of the Godhead found anywhere in the scriptures. And essentially what we see here is, you ready for this? God praying to God. God is praying to God, and we are the objects and the recipients of those prayers. What a, what a confusing but comforting concept. And, and really, you have a choice to make. You can either be confused by this text or be comforted by this text. It's your choice. Paul's main goal in Romans 8 was to comfort, to reassure those of us who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but who are still living in a sin-cursed world and a sin-cursed body and still have to deal with sin and suffering. Paul wanted to comfort us. He wanted to reassure us. And last week we learned how both creation and Christians who find themselves in this already but not yet existence, being saved from the penalty and power of sin, but not ultimately rescued from the presence of sin, how we groan for deliverance from the corruption of sin and long for the day when all things will be restored to their original sinless condition when Jesus returns and God's children receive their glorified bodies and reign with Christ in the new heavens 
and the new earth. That's what we learned in verses 18 through 25. And so creation groans for restoration, and Christians groan for resurrection or redemption of their bodies, but there's someone else who groans for both of these things as well, and that is our comforter, the Holy Spirit. And this morning, we're going to look at the third groaning in this symphony of sighs, as we called it last week, which Paul composed or arranged in this passage to inspire us with hope as we patiently endure life's pain and sorrow and eagerly anticipate Christ's return. Now, we know, based on Ephesians 4.30, that the Spirit is grieved whenever we sin, Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so we know that whenever we sin, the Spirit is grieved, which indicates He is a person because He has feelings. But at the same time, He is grieving, He is also groaning for that day when we will be delivered from sin altogether and finally be perfect just like Jesus is perfect. And the Holy Spirit's groanings are expressed in the prayers that he prays for us to the Father. Now, this may be a new concept to some of you. I think most of us are familiar with the intercessory work of Christ on our behalf. The scripture says that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven where he serves as our mediator, our advocate, by constantly interceding for us to the Father. Uh, in fact, here in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then again, the writer of Hebrews talks about this intercessory work of Christ in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. This is Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus is continually praying for us, interceding for us as our advocate, as our mediator before the Father at the right hand, sitting there at the throne. Um, we have an example of Christ's intercessory work when he was here on earth, when uh, he came to Peter and said, hey, Peter, just want to know that um, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And you would think Peter probably responded, well, you told him no, right? So he said, uh, yeah, Satan has desired or asked to sift you like wheat. But just so you know, I'm praying for you. That you'll pass that test and then when you come through that trial... Uh, you're going to come forth as gold and you're going to be able to teach others and share with others the things that you learn and you're going to be able to lead the apostles. This is all part of your preparation to be the leader of the apostles when I'm no longer here. And I think in the same way, Jesus prays for us when we are in times of temptation, when we are in times of trial. Jesus prays on our behalf. 
I think Jesus could say that to all of us, that, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. Just so you know, I'm praying for you. So we know that the, about the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ, but we're probably not as familiar with the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit, who also intercedes for us in prayer. We, we actually have not one, but two intercessors. We have one in heaven, and we have one in our hearts. We have one who affirms us and the other who assists us. I almost titled this sermon, The Other Intercessor. As I've mentioned before, the overarching theme of this chapter, Romans 8, is the indispensable role that the indwelling spirit plays in the sanctification of believers. And as we've gone through this chapter, we've learned how the spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death, how he enables us to fulfill the law. He he grants us life and peace. He will resurrect our bodies someday. He empowers us to put to death sinful habits in our lives. That's the doctrine of mortification, verse 13. He assures us that we are God's children. And now here in verses 26 and 27, Paul said the spirit helps us by interceding for us in prayer. And so when it comes to the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, I think this has to be one of the most overlooked and underrated roles that he plays, the Spirit plays, in our sanctification. And so here in these two verses, Paul explained three truths about the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit that give us hope that we're not alone in our present suffering and our patient waiting. And so let's look at these verses together, and I want us to see these three truths, and I've just really laid them out as questions. Number one, why the Holy Spirit prays for us. Number two, how the Holy Spirit prays for us. And number three, what the Holy Spirit prays for us. Let's look first of all at why the Holy Spirit prays for us. Notice verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, For we do not know how to pray as we should. Now that opening phrase, in the same way, I think simply refers back to what he just got done talking about in verses 18 through 25, that while creation groans and Christians groan for final redemption and restoration from the defilement of sin, the Holy Spirit is groaning along with us. So you've got creation, you've got Christians, you've got the comforter, all groaning together in this, in this chorus of groans, this trio of groans, if you will. But notice he says, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Now that word helps, I think, is the most important word. Because you remember uh, when Jesus was about to return to heaven... In order to comfort his disciples, he promised to send the Holy Spirit to what? Help them. Turn back to John, the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. 
So here is the promise, the initial promise that Jesus gave of the indwelling Holy Spirit who was called simply the helper. Notice uh, verse 25 in that same chapter. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then chapter 15, verse 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And then lastly, in chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That word helper in the Greek is parakletos, or the paraclete, uh, as you may have heard of before, and it simply means someone who comes alongside to help and support. And so the moment we are born again, the Holy Spirit who is the third member of the Trinity, comes to dwell within us and help us live our lives in a manner that's pleasing to God. And among other things, like illuminating God's word, which he's doing right now, guiding us, enabling us to mortify sin, empowering us to witness, assuring us of our salvation, gifting us to serve, uh, producing fruit in us. In these two verses in in Romans, uh, we learn how the Holy Spirit helps us by continually praying for us while we are being weighed down by the heavy burden of our remaining sin and our earnest longing for heaven. Now, that word helps there in verse 26 is is one long Greek word made up of a couple or a few short words. And, And it can be translated lending a helping hand. Or working alongside someone, helping someone carry a heavy load. That's the idea here. The only other time this word was used in the New Testament is in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verse 40, the story of Mary and Martha. Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to what? Remember? Help me. Come alongside me. Lend a helping hand. I've got this heavy load in there. She's banging the pots and pans around in the kitchen, and Mary's sitting there at Jesus' feet, drinking it all in, and, and Mary got hacked, or, or Martha got hacked off, and you tell her to help me. I'm trying to do this all by myself. And the point is, we desperately need the Spirit's help because we are, what does it say? Weak. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. We're just weak in general, but especially when it comes to prayer. We're so much like the disciples in the garden, and these were the the three top disciples, by the way. These were the ones that had the closest relationship with Jesus, maybe the most spiritually mature of all the disciples, and Jesus invited them to come into the garden and to step away with him to pray. He was going to go off and pray, and he wanted them to pray with him, and he came back and found them what? Sleeping. I mean, this was the cream of the crop. This, was a, this wasn't the bottom of the barrel. This was, these were the top guys, and they, they were so weak that they just fell asleep when they should have been praying, and they didn't just do it once. They did it three times. 
And that's why we are told elsewhere in the scriptures to pray in dependence on the Spirit's power and in submission to the Spirit's will. Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times in the Spirit. Jude 20, praying in the Holy Spirit. The picture that came to my mind was Moses there in the wilderness when the, the Israelites had just been delivered from slavery to Egypt, and they weren't out just a few days when the Amalekites took the, uh, took, tried to take advantage of them and attacked them. And so Joshua went out in battle against the Amalekites, and Moses went up on the hill, and if you remember, he lifted his hands, right, to pray, and, 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 and as long as he was lifting his hands and praying, the Israelites were whooping up on the Amalekites, but when he put his hands down, Things switched, and the Amalekites were whipping up on the Israelites. And so he, he, he got so tired, he couldn't hold up his own hands. So Aaron and Hur stood on either side. They put him, on, put him on a rock. He sat down on a rock, and they held his hands up for him. And they won the battle. Exodus 17, if you're curious where to find that. We also need the help of the Holy Spirit to uphold us and to support us while we're praying. One of my favorite little books that... I've ever read on the subject of prayer. It's called The Hidden Life of Prayer by David McIntyre. He lived back in the early 1900s. This is what he wrote. He said, without the support of the Holy Spirit, prayer becomes a matter of incredible difficulty. This helping of the Spirit is as a man taking up a heavy piece of timber by the one end um, who cannot alone get it up till some other man takes it up at the other end, and so helps him. So the poor soul that is pulling and tugging with his own heart, he finds it heavy and dull like a log in a ditch, and he can do not good with it, till at last the Spirit of God comes at the other end and takes the heaviest end of the burden, and so helps the soul to lift it up. You ever try to move a big old log? Maybe that was uh, a tree fell down and you, you cut it up in the backyard and you got this big log and you, you tried to move this thing and, and you picked up one end and you were trying to shove it and pull it and drag it and, and man, it was just really, you weren't making much progress. And then until somebody else came and picked up the other end and man, you were going to move that thing and throw it wherever you needed to, right? It made it a whole lot easier to have somebody on the other end. And so maybe the reason why you struggle so much in your prayer life is because you're trying to do it in your own strength. Trying to pick up and move that log of prayer all by yourself. You need the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it by yourself. We need to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit. McIntyre goes on to say this. He says, let us ask for a fresh gift of the Holy Spirit to quicken our sluggish hearts. The Spirit will help our infirmities by the way, that's the King James version of the Spirit also helps our weakness. The Spirit will help our infirmities and the very compassion of the Son of God will fall upon us, clothing us with zeal as with a garment, stirring our affections into a most vehement flame and filling our souls with heaven. Now, that's the kind of prayer time I want to experience, but it won't happen if we're doing it in our own strength and we're not leaning upon the Holy Spirit. Now, having said all that, the primary weakness when it comes to our prayer lives that Paul had in mind here when he was writing this is not our lack of discipline to pray. 
or our tendency to get distracted when we pray, those are problems, aren't they? It just shows how weak we are, that we lack the discipline and we get so distracted when we pray. But that's not the primary weakness that Paul had in view here. The primary weakness is our ignorance when we pray. In other words, we don't know what we should pray or how we should pray when we were particularly in the midst of a time of season of suffering and we're often confused about the purposes of God and why this is happening to us. I mean, who is not bowed to pray and been at a loss for words? You've been there? You were in a particular situation and you honestly didn't even know how to pray. I don't even know what to pray right now. Notice that's what he gives as the weakness. In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. What are you talking about, Paul? For we do not know how to pray as we should. In other words, we are weak and and finite. And we don't always know what God's will is for our lives or the lives of others that we pray for. In fact, we cannot possibly know for sure what God is up to in our pain and sorrow besides making us more like Christ. We know that from the next two verses in our text, verses 28 and 29, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So we always know that One of the things, or the ultimate thing that God is up to, is that he's making us more like Jesus. That's his purpose for this pain or this sorrow. But whenever we find ourselves faced with a difficult circumstance or find ourselves in a perplexing situation, it's hard to know exactly how to pray for or what to pray for specifically. And sometimes we pray selfishly. Or we pray ignorantly, or sometimes we pray even foolishly. Consider Job. Job chapter 7, verse 20 and 21. This is what Job prayed in the midst of his trial. Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? We know that Job didn't have a clue why all these bad things were happening to him. All his counselors thought they knew. Oh, Job, it's because you're a sinner. And God's judging you. He's punishing you. Well, little did he know, and how could he have ever known, that it was God himself who had picked the fight with Satan. He said, have you considered my servant Job? There's not a man like him on the earth. And Satan's like, well, of course, because... He has everything he needs. You, you just, you give him this cushy life. Why wouldn't he worship you and serve you? And God's like, oh, really? You think that's why my people worship me? Take it all away and let's see what he does. Well, Satan was the one that had targeted Job, not God. He was the one that was causing all these things to happen, obviously under the permission of God. But he was saying, God, have I, have I become a burden to you? When in actuality, he had been a blessing to God. 
So much so that he wanted to use him to make a point with Satan. He was not a burden, he was a blessing. But he didn't know. How about Elijah? After that mountaintop experience, literally the mountaintop experience of uh, going toe-to-toe with the 400 prophets of Baal. And uh, just an amazing miracle of God. Fire from heaven comes down and laps up the altar and the, the sacrifice. And he goes on to, to slay the 400 prophets of Baal. And Jezebel gets word of it. And she says, well, guess what, pal? You're a goner. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you just like you killed my prophets. And so he took off running, scared. And uh, if you know the story, he fell down under a tree, and this is what he prayed, 1 Kings 19.4, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. In other words, God, I, just, just kill me. He was asking God to, to kill him. And, of course, that wasn't the will of God. God had more things in store for him. He wanted to use him to do, to accomplish greater things even than that. And so he put him to sleep, right? Gave him something to eat, refreshed him, and he continued on in his ministry. Notice here in Romans 8, verse 26, Paul included himself in this category of weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. Now, this might come as a surprise that someone, even of his stature, a spiritually mature believer, a completely dedicated servant of Christ, a divinely inspired author of Scripture, a theologically astute teacher and someone who faithfully and fervently prayed through this long list of churches and Christians would admit that he didn't always know what to pray. This is the Apostle Paul. In fact, there's a couple of examples that he includes in his own letters, like um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is that... Uh, passage about Paul's thorn in the flesh and how he had gone to heaven and back in order to keep him humble, um, in order that he wouldn't boast. Um, God gave him this thorn in the flesh, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, we don't know for sure what that thorn in the flesh was. Some say it was some medical condition that maybe had some eye disease. Uh, I think it's better to understand this as how he defines it. This thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan, probably a uh, demonically inspired false teacher in the church in Corinth because he spent the entire letter defending his ministry against false teachers. And so he had this guy, this thorn in the flesh, if you will, uh, this irritation who just constantly nipping at his heels, uh, tormenting him, but it was to keep him humble. Now, if you had that going on in your life, how would you pray? Probably the same way Paul prayed. Verse 8, concerning this, I employed the Lord three times that it might leave me. God, is this really necessary? Okay. Um, I'm not enjoying this. Okay. I don't see the need for this. Um, 
would you just take this away? And, and that was not just something he prayed once or twice. He prayed three times. In verse 9, he said to, and, and he said to me, this was God's answer to Paul's prayers, persistent prayers. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So God allowed that to remain, that thorn to remain in Paul's life for a purpose. That he would find that his grace is sufficient. And that God's power is ultimately perfected in our weaknesses. When we are weak, he's, the more weak we are, the more strong he can be, right? How about Paul's dilemma that he describes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, and that is very much better, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul's like, I don't know what I should be praying for, because... Man, there's part of me that wants to go to heaven because that would be way better. But there's part of me that thinks it would be great to stay on earth because there's a lot more ministry uh, I could do for the Lord. And, and so I don't know what to pray. And, and um, I'm just kind of conflicted. And so essentially Paul didn't know what to pray. These are examples of Paul not either number one, praying the right thing or just not knowing what to pray. Now, based on the many prayers that Paul prayed, Ephesians 1, 15 through 19, 14 through 19, uh, Ephesians 6, Colossians 1, Colossians 4. Okay, there's, these are great examples of what to pray. Like, if you don't know what to pray for, you're like, oh, I just, man, I get there and I sit down to pray and I just don't know what to pray for and my mind goes blank. Well, pull out the, the prayers of Paul and just, just repeat those to the Lord. Just, just mimic those prayers. Say the same, pray the same thing he was praying. So, so in that sense, we, we know what to pray. We just follow the example of Paul. We, these great prayers that he prayed for all the saints. And, and we also know what we should pray for based on the many principles of God's word. For example, if you know of a command, for example, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Well, wives, that would be a natural prayer. That's something you know that you're to pray for. Lord, help me to have a submissive spirit in this relationship with this man that you have sovereignly ordained to be over me. Would you grant me a submissive heart, a submissive spirit? And, and, and as a husband, we should pray, God, you have called me to love this woman, this wife that you've entrusted to my care, your daughter. Uh, you've called me to love her like Christ loves me. And, and that's an impossibility. I don't have that in me. Would you grant me grace? Would you help me to, to love my wife unconditionally and sacrificial? You know what you should pray, right? So there's things that, generally speaking, we know what we're to pray for. But, again, the context here is a season of suffering, this 
this, this, this groaning season when you're dealing with suffering in your life, and, and which is all the result of remaining sin in us and, and in, the, in the corruption of creation. So when it comes to these seasons of suffering, we don't know whether we should pray for deliverance or endurance. Because we don't know, is, is it your will that you deliver me from this? The thorn in the flesh, right? Or you want me to endure this and just hang in there through this for your purposes and for your glory? I'll never forget visiting Dylan. Dylan Linton went home to be with the Lord uh, recently. And when I visited him in the hospital towards the end, he, he asked everybody else to leave the room and he wanted to talk to me. And there was obviously something on his heart, a burden on his heart that he wanted to share with me or ask me a question. I wasn't sure what was coming. And, and uh, it was so sweet. He laid there and he was just, he was just miserable, uh, in pain, battling this cancer for all these months. And uh, so many of us and his family in particular, just praying for him that God would just grant him healing and grant him endurance and that the Lord would, would, would be glorified through, um, you know, him being healed and and um, uh, being, being an example, a testimony for Christ through all this. And, and uh, he just, he just uh, grabbed my hand and he said, he said, Pastor, is it okay for me to pray that I would go to heaven? <laughs> and it was so sweet because his, he didn't want to give up on everybody who was praying for him. Um, he wanted to be strong and and tough, and, and not be a quitter in, in their eyes or his eyes. And I said, brother, no one is ever going to accuse you of being a quitter. I said, this is a dilemma. And Paul said, I, I don't know what's better for me to, 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 to go and be with you or to stay here. And, and, and I said, I just encourage you to just pray here as you're laying here in this bed. And they said, Lord, you know I'm in pain, and, 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 and I'm, I'm done with this. And, and I just want to come be with you in heaven. Would you please take me home? But Lord, if you want me to hang in here a little bit longer um, for your purposes here, would you grant me grace to endure? Give me strength and stamina to endure. And that was my counsel to him that it was a, it was a toss up. It was a trade off, right? But it's okay to pray for the Lord to take you home. Um, as long as you're willing to hang in there if that's his will, right? So the reason why the Holy Spirit prays for us is because we're weak and we don't know how to pray or what we should pray. Now, the second truth that Paul explains here is how the Holy Spirit prays for us. So why the Holy Spirit prays for us, but now how the Holy Spirit prays for us. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but here it is, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is where we get into the, the deep part of the deep end, okay? It's going to get deeper here, okay? So he says, the Spirit himself intercedes for us, literally keeps on interceding. This is in the present tense, so he's 
constantly, continually interceding for us. And to intercede means to plead someone's case or to intervene on behalf of another. And so this is a picturesque word here that describes someone coming to the rescue of someone else who is in trouble and they step in to serve as an advocate or as a spokesman for them. You're at a loss for words. You need a spokesman. And so when we're in a troubling situation and don't know what to pray, the Spirit steps in and prays for us. Now, granted, if you're praying in the Spirit, like Paul commanded elsewhere, Ephesians 6, 18, then the Spirit assists us as we pray and guides us as to what we should pray in any and every situation. He, he gives us the words to say, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul is saying here is the Spirit is always praying for us just like Jesus is. That he deeply loves us and jealously desires for us to be finally free from sin and able to glorify God perfectly forever in our glorified bodies. You think you're groaning for that final freedom? The Holy Spirit is groaning even more. He's perfect. And so he groans together with us. I came across this great analogy by James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary. He said this about groaning, because it says here in the text, right, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He said this, quote, a groan is appropriate for burden bearing. Suppose you're helping someone carry a heavy, a very heavy load. What is more expressive, a groan as you stagger along beneath it or a great deal of articulate chatter? Suppose your helper is saying, my, this piano is heavy. They certainly do make pianos heavy and awkward too. Probably we should have spent the money and gone ahead and hired professional piano movers. I don't think I want to do this very often. Have you ever moved a piano before? He said, if you're struggling with a heavy load too, that is probably the last thing you want to hear. If someone is chattering away like that, you would probably just want to tell the so-called helper to shut up and lift the piano. A real burden bearer simply groans with you. Right? Hey, that says it all. And so the Spirit intercedes for the saints, he says, for us, with groanings too deep for words. I, I like the NIV, how it translates it. With wordless groans. So the Spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans. I think that's a very accurate translation of what Paul was saying here. Paul wasn't saying that the prayers of the Spirit utters on our behalf are incapable of being put into words. That's one way you could understand this. He wasn't saying that, that, that the prayers the Spirit utters on our behalf are incapable of being put into words, but they're simply not put into words. They're inaudible. Or as Stott says, they're not inexpressible but unexpressed. And we'll see in a moment why that is the case. But just let me say this, the fact that 
the praying that is being done by the Spirit, okay, that this praying that's being done here is by the Spirit, not us, okay? You understand that? It's not the Spirit praying with us, um, enabling us to pray. It's that the Spirit is praying for us on our behalf, silently, at least to our ears, that, that nothing is actually heard, okay? All this proves that this verse has nothing to do with praying in tongues, as some suggest. Some use this verse to say, well, look, look this, is a, this is praying in tongues. The Spirit's speaking through our mouths and, and saying things. And, well, number one, it's not us praying, it's the Spirit. And number two, there's nothing being said. There's no words. And so many charismatics and Pentecostals interpret these groanings of the spirits as, as, as utterances in these unknown tongues or ecstatic gibberish that, that is no rational content. It's the word for tongues in the, in the New Testament is glossolalia. And according to the New Testament passage where that word is used, that, that, that tongues are actual audible languages that people can hear, understand, and interpret. It's not just some, what did he just say? That was weird. I don't understand that. Is there anyone here who could, could interpret that for us? Nope. That's not biblical tongues. Biblical tongues was the Spirit giving people the ability to share the gospel in a foreign language that they had never learned. That's what you see at the Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2, people are like, whoa, these guys are all Galileans, and I'm, why are they speaking my language? And I'm hearing the gospel, and people from all over the world had come to Jerusalem, and so God gave them the ability to, to preach the gospel in multiple languages to reach all the people that were there. I would also add this, that every believer experiences the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit. Whereas not every believer was given the gift of tongues or the interpretation of tongues. So again, Paul was not referring to anything coming out of our mouths, but a silent conversation that is constantly going on between the members of the Trinity. Okay, this is the part where we all go, right? This is a mystery, and since the members of the Trinity are one in essence and will, no words are necessary. They know exactly what each other is thinking because they're always thinking the same thing. 1 Corinthians 2.11, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Why is that true? Because the mind of the Spirit is the mind of God, and the mind of God is the mind of the Spirit. They're one and the same. And that's what Paul goes on to say, verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. God is the one who searches and examines our hearts. He always knows what is going on in our hearts and minds. First Samuel 16, 7, God... Um, Sees not as man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. First Chronicles 28.9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. 
Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord search, I the Lord search the heart. Acts 1.24, you Lord know the hearts of all men. So since the Spirit knows the thoughts of God, and God knows the thoughts of the Spirit, they can communicate without words. I know some of you married couples who have been married for many years say, yeah, we kind of communicate without words. Yeah, that's true. I get that. I appreciate that. You know, where, you know, you can just ride in the car and you can drive for hours in silence and it's just okay. And there's sweet communion there, even though there's not any conversation necessarily happening at that moment. But this is something so much greater, so much deeper, so much better. And so we've learned why the Holy Spirit prays for us, how the Holy Spirit prays for us, and then thirdly, what the Holy Spirit prays for us. What the Holy Spirit prays for us, notice at the end, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Here it is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the prayers of the Holy Spirit are always in accordance with the will of God, since his will is God's will. And therefore, the Spirit's prayers are always answered. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request which we've asked from him. So the Spirit always knows exactly what to pray. He's never at a loss for words, if you will, even though he doesn't use them when he's talking to the Father. And he always prays the right thing. He's never praying for one thing when it's really, this is what God's will is. Well, he is God, and so he knows the will of God. He, so he's always praying the right thing. See, we don't always know what God's will is in a particular situation or decision. What major to choose in college or, you know, what job to pursue or what house to buy or what who to marry, these kinds of things, right? And so consequently, we don't, we don't always know the right thing to pray, but we can draw great comfort and confidence from knowing that the Holy Spirit does. He knows the right thing to pray. And he's praying for us all the time that the will of God will be accomplished in our lives. How cool is that? Some of you parents are faithful to pray those kinds of prayers for your kids, right? Lord, that, that you would accomplish your will in their life. It's one thing to have your mom praying for, for, for that for you. It's another thing to have the third member of the Trinity praying that for you. The Holy Spirit praying that for you. I always think it's super cool that that's kind of, I know my mom's praying that for me all the time. That, that God's will would be done in my life. As she always prays, I pray that you'd be in the center of God's will in everything you say, everything you do. And that's, that's such an encouragement to me. It comforts me. It reassures me. But how much more should it comfort me and, and assure me that the Spirit of God is praying that prayer for me? Now, I don't know about you, but the natural question that came to my mind as I was studying all this, was this. If I stink so bad at prayer, 
And we all do because we're sinners, right? Can we all admit that? We, we tend to stink at prayer. Well, he doesn't say stink. He says weak. We're weak, right? We, we stink at prayer. And, and if we do stink so bad at prayer and the Holy Spirit always knows exactly what to pray, then why don't we just leave the praying to him? Hey, this is easy, man. I'm, I'm just going to let him do all the heavy work, right? And I'm just going to live my life, and I'm just going to trust that he's praying for me, and, and uh, it's all going to work out, and boy, that makes my life easier. Well, remember, we're talking about picking up a log that needs somebody on both ends, right? Yeah, the Holy Spirit doesn't need us to help him pick up that log, but Guess what? God's ordained, ordained the means by which that law gets moved. And it's not just the Holy Spirit. He wants us to partner with the Holy Spirit. We're expected to pray. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, Jesus assumed that you'd pray. We're exhorted to pray. We're commanded to pray. Be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving in your heart, let your petitions, your prayers, your requests be made known to God. Devote yourself to prayer, Colossians 4, 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. So we're expected to pray, we're exhorted to pray, and then prayer is exemplified throughout the scriptures. Through people like Abraham and Hannah and David and Hezekiah, Nehemiah, Daniel, and of course, Jesus himself modeled in his humanness the need to pray. He would go away early in the morning, right, and find a quiet place and pray. And even in his humanness in the garden, he was wrestling with the will of God. Lord, not my will, but what? Yours be done. So don't let this passage make you cop out on prayer. You need to keep praying. And in fact, this passage should inspire you and motivate you to pray like you've never prayed before. Because we're really simply left here to ponder the mysterious workings of the Trinity, but more than that, the glorious privilege that we have as children of God to commune together in prayer with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'll confess to you that when I sit down or kneel down or are walking around praying, Rarely do I think about entering in to the presence of this, of the Godhead. It's almost like you've got three heroes sitting around in the same room, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go there. I was thinking of DC comic Trinity, but that wouldn't be a good analogy, right? But you get to sit around with Superman and Batman and, no, that's a bad analogy. But the point is, I mean, you think about what would motivate you more than anything else to pray. 
is knowing that you've been invited by the triune God to directly and personally interface with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whoa! I read a book um, on my recent trip to South Africa, just a little book, my favorite kinds, little ones, um, and it was called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. Simple little book, Enjoy Your Prayer Life. thought, oh, that'd be good. I need to enjoy my prayer life more. Well, this was what I got out of it, this, this one little section. Michael Reeves writes this, quote, you are a cherished son and your father delights to hear you. We must believe that the most high is our loving father and that is, and that is prayer relating to the father as our father. Of course, we have a personal relationship with the son and the spirit as well. And so we can pray to them. But normal Christian prayer is something richer and juicier. I like that. We join in with the fellowship of God as the Father, Son, and Spirit are already enjoying it. We're brought into that communion. If that doesn't motivate you to want to pray, (laughs) I don't know what will. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the mystery that you are. That just reminds us of how much greater you are than we are and how worthy you are to be worshiped and honored and served and obeyed and honored. And Lord, thank you for this practical help when it comes to our prayer life. And Lord, that um, somehow you would sort some of this mystery out in our minds so that we can apply it, mainly to draw comfort and reassurance, knowing that we don't just have one intercessor, we have two. We got a tag team, your son and your spirit, who usher us into your presence as our father. Lord, I pray that uh, the communion that awaits for us in prayer would drive us to our knees every day just so that we could enjoy your presence and being with you as the triune God. We love you and... uh, We pray that you would grant us grace to live for you this week. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.